Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are right, everyone else is wrong, and you should just listen to us because we know what we're talking about. I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh Lord! <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Yeah. I, I'm I, I'm actually good. Like I, I I said just before we started recording, I said I said I don't. There are some things that have gone on um, on the internets, and the, granted, the internets are not always the best like overview of intelligent humanity. But I feel like it's been particularly stupid recently, <laughs> yeah. and and there are times when I disagree with people, but I understand their argument. And I understand where they're coming from and like how they reach the conclusions that they do, even though I think the conclusions are, are incorrect, right? Or I don't agree with the opinion. There have been opinions that I'm just like, I don't know how anyone draws that conclusion without just being stupid. <laughs> like I, because the thought process does not exist in my universe, I guess, or something. I don't know, but I'm just like, I can only draw the conclusion that you are dumb. Like that's it. And I, I feel bad for saying that you're dumb, but I think you might be dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I there are times it, it's sort of like that whole thing where where someone will be like I can't fathom how anybody could possibly like this movie or could possibly hate this movie you know there I don't know what I'm trying to say there I just <laughs> maybe I'm dumb uh but <laughs> but no like like obviously there's some way that the thinking makes sense to them I just can't see it because it's outside of my entire scope of like things that make sense. Well, and and some of this might be the limitations of, you know, like I say, social media is very limited in yes. the ability to like explain reasoning and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. so there are definitely times when people express opinions that I'm like, I have no idea how you arrive at that. And probably yeah. they do have a very intelligent process, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, there are like some just an announcements or or statements that I'm like, hot takes i have no clue how you arrived at that conclusion and and i i cannot like i i cannot give credence to any of your opinions anymore yeah yeah so one of the ones that we're referencing for anybody who is not on twitter and has no idea what we're talking about um one of the things that was said this week was that taxi driver is more of a paul schrader movie than a martin scorsese movie which i i'm baffled i'm completely <laughs> well I, yeah meh, okay martin so. scorsese is, and taxi driver are like 
synonymous yes like Like symbiotic i don't know like yeah i i don't think of one without thinking of the other (laughs) well and and i do i kind of understand the reasoning on this although i think that the reasoning misses everything um misses most things right so schrader wrote taxi driver schrader was a uh, was heavily involved in the production of the film as well Mm -hmm. so it's very often viewed as being this sort of it's a collaboration which it's it definitely is you know it's not just driven by scorsese it's not just driven by schrader um and you know i've seen taxi driver a number of times uh i've had long conversations about taxi driver one of the things that you know people kind of use as saying like well this is more of a paul schrader film one of the things that someone said was that well it doesn't condemn bickle's misogyny which I don't know what movie you're watching, um, but yeah, I think that, I that, that says more about the viewer than it does about the actual content of the film. Because if you're paying attention to the content of the film, this is not a film that is just like, yay, Travis Bickle. Like, right, and, he's not the hero here, like in Joker. Yeah, exactly. And now that's, and I think that that's where things begin to get muddled a little bit when you're talking about Scorsese versus Schrader um because people have this interpretation of taxi driver that comes from the content of the film definitely but ignores a lot of it uh and and so i think that that's where that's coming from the other thing is that if you've watched any of paul schrader's films you realize that paul schrader has been attempting to make taxi driver his entire career (laughs) since taxi driver got made and you know, I absolutely believe, based upon Schrader's other work, that he does not think that Taxi Driver is a is condemning misogyny or anything like that. I think that he probably believes that Bickle is a hero. That's not what the film does, but I think that that's what Schrader thinks. And so if you watch most of Schrader's other films, what's shown in his films tends to be a lot of very... Um, uninvestigated misogyny, a lot of anger at women, a lot of anger at God, for lack of a better better term, a lot of, you know, basically superficial theology, all of this stuff. So it's like Taxi Driver, but if written and directed by a 14-year-old incel, like it's that level of of intellectual engagement and ability, et cetera. So that's kind of where I think that people are coming from the Schrader argument is exhausting me because I'm like, I, I don't know how anyone can watch that man's films and be like, oh, here's a great director, right? Or a great writer, particularly. I, I am absolutely convinced that all of the, the depth of Taxi Driver doesn't come from Schrader. It comes from Martin Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in that, in that way, it is every bit more of a Martin Scorsese film than a Paul Schrader film. It's like Scorsese kind of saved saved it from itself in a way i think that that i mean from everything that i've read about the production of the film and everything that kind of they were constantly at loggerheads they they were friends but they were also like in constant conflict with each other and it might be that that constant conflict is what finally produced what we have as taxi drivers so you've got this tension that exists within the film and that that tension might be coming from this combination of Schrader and scorsese hmm. yeah. but which, you know, you know, and I would definitely give Schrader that degree of credit. But to say that it's more of a Paul Schrader film than it is a Martin Scorsese film tells me that you have not paid attention to Taxi Driver. Yeah. Or the films of Paul Schrader or the films of Martin Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> or film generally. Or have any also sort of <laughs> critical, cr- 
critical a, a critical thinking ability um, <laughs> yeah sorry I just think it's stupid like, I don't yeah. know what else to say beyond that <laughs> the other one I'm completely baffled by right now is some of the some it's a very small number of people but some of the discourse surrounding the second season of Ted Lasso and we talked about this a little bit last week too but it's just you know I saw I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it but there's something I I just need to kind of just say so if you have not watched Ted Lasso I'm not going to give major spoilers but I would recommend uh fast forwarding like five minutes um and i'll try to put in a tag in the show notes or something of when it's safe to return but um there's there's our beloved uh assistant coach nate shelley he's going on a journey this season he's started to finally feel what it's like to be respected to be in a position of um authority and he's not handling that well and it's really clear from pretty early on in the season that that this is a problem that there's some mentoring and coaching that Nate needs in order to really be able to do this job well and it's not happening because nobody's really seeing that there's a problem because they're also wrapped up in other things and um it's it's it was so weird to me earlier this week when I saw I'm not going to name her because uh, I don't want to shame her because she's normally a very smart person. But I saw a critic that I respect who was just complaining about like, I don't like Nate this season and um, I just don't like where they're taking this character. And I'm thinking, how are you so badly missing the point? Like you're not supposed to like where you're, where they're going with him this season. This is supposed to be deeply concerning. This is supposed to be a problem. You're supposed to not like this. And I just, this just leading back into the, like, are people just dumb? She's not dumb. She's not a dumb person, but this is one of those things where it's like, man, she's super missing the point. And I, I think a lot of people, <laughs> I've been doing that just in general with a lot of things lately and um, I'm just I'm baffled yeah I I mean I I agree with you I um you know I you've seen a few more episodes I think than I have uh of, of Ted Lasso but it was obvious from the beginning of this uh season that they were going in a direction with Nate and one of the things that and maybe people are missing it in, in the watch, you know, granted, I have watched this show. So I watched the first season pretty much all the way through. I didn't binge it, but I just, I pretty steadily watched it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I did, I also did that with the second season up until the point that we're now at. Right. So now it's, it's back to weekly um, for me. So I've kind of maybe had more of a continuum than some people because I came to this show late. Uh, so there's been more like, oh, I see what they're doing. You, you kind of see the plot beats of, yeah. of what they're up to and the character beats of what they're up to. But yeah, with Nate in particular during this season, it's been obvious to me. And they it's not like they conceal it. They do the cutaways of him, like of his expressions, mm -hmm. um, you know, the little microaggressions that he has against people, the way that he reacts to the, to the way that people talk to him. It's not just explicit, right? It isn't just like, 
the the scene with him and um, and Rebecca and Keeley where they're trying to to tell him how how to be more assertive, right? Mm-hmm. It isn't just scenes like that that that's much more explicit, but it's smaller things as well. And so what is happening with his character is definitely building throughout this season, and and it is this this crossroads, right? He needs help. This is a guy who has been bullied most of his life. Um, you know, that's, that's the impression that you get of his character. He's now in a position of relative power. He's being respected, right? He's being told that you're actually good at this. You're good at being a coach. You, uh, you, there are things that you are really, that you're really capable at. And he's never really been told that he's capable ever. Right. right? Not even by his parents. Like his mom loves him, but she still treats him like a little kid. And then his dad just looks down on everything he does nothing's yeah and so you've got someone who has been pretty consistently bullied their entire lives who's now achieving a certain degree of power and and rightful praise right his his calling of certain plays have been very intelligent he's smart about football Mm -hmm. and because of that he's getting this massive ego shot but he also feels really um he feels wronged and partially you know, somewhat rightfully so. He has been wronged in his life, but the, his response to it, he has no emotional intelligence to know how to respond to it. So his response to it is to do exactly what people have done to him and become a bully. Yep. That's what's happening to him. And it, it's one of those where you're like, okay, this guy could turn into a great coach and eventually someday a fantastic manager, or he could turn into an absolute monster. And he's at the crossroads. And it's obvious that that's what the show is doing. That's what I don't get in terms of, like you're saying, people talking about his character, just like, I hate what they're doing today. It's just like, yeah, you're supposed to. He's this nice dude who is getting a little bit of power and is responding the way that some nice dudes respond to getting power. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's problematic. It's, it's the geek who's, who's becoming, you know, harvey weinstein <laughs> yeah right yeah. and so i mean not to that level but yeah, yeah. Exactly. i mean no it's a, that's an extreme example obviously but yeah it, it's it's the the bully the bullied kid who is becoming the bully it's the nerd who is who is turning into the person who can like exert power uh and and meanness basically over other people and he doesn't have the guidance that he needs to to sort of to not become that yeah well and and it's so clear like you say you know with micro expressions and things like that but also in just the way that he has he makes sure to hold back certain conversations until he thinks that they're like that other people can't hear like he thinks it's just between him and whoever he's talking to and um that is also very much an abusive trait he's not gonna go and and belittle someone like i mean he does do that too but like some of the conversations he has like he's not going to necessarily do that in front of other people because he knows enough to uh to keep that you know quiet and that's part of the problem because it's really hard for everyone else to see what's going on because he's doing such a good job of hiding it well, and yeah, exactly. And, and it's like, I think that a lot of people are relating to him as though he's still exactly the same person that he was in the last season. Right. And by that, I mean the other characters, right? So so the scene with Keeley that you pointed out, the scene with Keeley and Rebecca, where they're teaching him how to be more assertive. And he goes way too far. And they're like, <laughs> whoa, bro, no, 
No, and mm -hmm. it, it, it feeds into that um, speech that Roy gives to Jamie in, uh, I think it's the sixth episode. Yeah. Um, and says like, you know, basic, basically he's like, well, Ted ruined you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the point that Roy makes is that one of the things that makes Jamie a great soccer player is that he's an asshole, right? Yeah. Is that he's egotistical. He thinks he's the greatest thing since bread, right? He is an asshole. And there are times in the world of sports and in life generally where you have to be an asshole. You have to be assertive. You have to be that element, right, of your personality that is not something you should be all the time, but something you can be some of the time when it's appropriate. And that's what, and Jamie, amazingly enough, is emotionally mature enough <laughs> to understand what Roy is talking about. Right. And when Roy, you know, when he says, well, does that mean that I can be an asshole all the time? Roy's like, no, when it's appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jamie gets that. He's like, oh, okay. Like he, I, he understands what is being said. Nate doesn't have that. No right. one has said to him, like, there are times when it's okay to be an asshole and it's okay to be assertive or angry or to, you know, shout at people. And there are times when you shouldn't. And you need they, to know when. <laughs> yeah. They've also had very opposite journeys too, though, because Nate went from someone who was bullied actually by Jamie and others, um, who then starts to get more success and then more power. Jamie has had the opposite situation where he was on top of the world. He's the big star. He's the hot shot. And then because of some stupid choices he makes, um, he ends up finding himself in a position where he has to be humbled and he has to go back and and beg for a spot on the team and then he has to earn a key position again and and all that and so it's it's one of those things where he's more open to listening because he's seen that this could all go away for him any any time yeah and, and he's understood that his behavior in life has not really gotten him to where he wants to be right exactly. so he has he because he does he does lose his position he does lose the respect of other people you know ted at one point says like no i can't bring you back because but he, so he does have to be humble he has mm -hmm. to go to ted and say like i'm sorry i want to work on myself he has to apologize to the people that he's hurt yeah. um and and that is that's how he begins to rebuild that trust and how he finally gets to the point where roy says you know you can be an asshole sometimes mm -hmm. not all the time sometimes and so other times you're not allowed it. to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, yeah. And then Nate doesn't have that. And Nate, no one's noticing or paying enough attention to the fact that Nate doesn't have that. He needs someone to guide him in just the same way that Jamie was guided. Yeah. And what's really interesting about Nate too, is that he's not someone who's just learned how to, how to say the things that are on his mind. He's just now in a position where he feels free to say them because you see this and it was such a, it was so well placed because it was so, it was so subtle and you don't realize it. But in the first season, when they're at that away game and um, I think it's the make Rebecca great again episode um, and he's written out, Nate's written out his thoughts on what he wants Ted to tell the team like each individual player something that they need to hear and ted's just like no you're gonna say this to them and it's not just like you know like colin this is this is your problem it's like mean stuff like it's 
it's funny. And in the scene, in the moment, it actually kind of brings the team together. But these are thoughts that he's been crafting that are really, you know, really kind of vicious. And so then when you see uh, scenes like what's happening in season two, and he'll say a certain thing to Colin, or he'll, you know, make certain comments to people, it's like, he's been thinking about that for a while. He just now feels like he can say it. Mm hmm yeah no, no yeah i remember that scene in in uh, the first season and being almost shocked that he mm -hmm. went as far as he did right because i thought that they were going to play it as you know oh here's how to improve your game it's right but some of it's just like yeah nasty and now i i think that this show does have this engagement with the way that men relate to each other and mm -hmm. particularly men in sports in this very high octane high testosterone <laughs> you know sort of manly thing masculine society that is it's very much you know embrace calling each other names mm -hmm. and saying nasty shit about each other is kind of expected and it is part of sort of camaraderie right it's just like right. oh you're a fucking idiot so well you're a fucking idiot you wanker wanker you know all of that <laughs> shit which is and, why it was so easy to miss that as a sign of things to come in season yeah one. because it felt like oh nate is you know he's participating in this masculine culture that he's hasn't really participated in before right. in a way that is safe in a way that is jocular in a way that is not you know taken seriously um a way that isn't bullying and again he's had no no one guide him with okay here's how you need to learn to behave right yeah um and and yeah and and he has he is perfectly set to become a monster mm -hmm. yep so that's our <laughs> thoughts on ted lanza i've only seen <laughs> one episode that you haven't gotten this okay. if if you've watched this week's episode you're almost totally caught up right. you haven't given us the rest of the season yet so but right. next well, week's I... is oh next week's is powerful <laughs> Ooh, so excited yeah it's uh, good. i mean there are definitely shows that have flubbed this yeah. in the past and um and so i'm not necessarily you know it's possible that ted lasso could go that way and could wind up fucking up the, the what they've set up i have enough trust in them given what they did in the first season that i don't think they're going to fuck it up they yeah. might so, you know, everybody we were talking about this, everybody that has made these objections might be 100% correct. <laughs> um, but I, I think that given the way that they've set everything up, I doubt that they are going to mess it up. Yeah, I would be very surprised if they're not able to, to bring this home in the right way. All right. Well, um, I have a question for you, Lauren. This is not on okay. the agenda. This is just <laughs> something right. that I was just the other day. I was watching something, and I was just you, sometimes you watch something that you just don't love, and then it's like, wait, do I even like movies anymore? I don't know. Maybe I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's funny because I I remember having that thought, but right at this moment, I can't even remember what movie I was watching that sparked that thought. But anyway, my question for you is what do you like about movies <laughs> Ooh, what do i like about movies um i i mean i think at a at a personal level there are definitely certain films that i was thinking about this the other uh, something similar the other day when i was watching theater of blood which i want to talk about later um <laughs> yes which was that there are some films 
and I, this is true for, uh, I think all kinds of literature, art, everything, right? Um, but there's some films that I, I watch, and I'm like, isn't it amazing that, that someone has actually made a movie specifically for me, right? That specifically addresses everything that I love, every, like, my sense of humor, my, you know, sense of the macabre, all of those things. And so that's what I was thinking when I was watching Theater of Blood. And there are a few films that are like that, where I, I'm just like this, I, I think that's one of the things that I love about movies is the fact that films can address something in you there. So I, I think that film is one of those mediums because it's this amalgamated medium that it has music and image and, you know, acting performances and um, just, everything that goes all goes into the single the single medium that is just this to, almost total sensory experience the only thing they can't give you is like taste and smell and even some films try to do that and and i i think that that's what i love about it is that it can really immerse you in this world and sometimes address feel like it's addressing you personally right feel like mm -hmm. that this is an experience that I understand or this is something that I love and that another person and group of people also love and have managed to like put on film and encapsulate forever. Like I think that I, I like film criticism. I like, uh, I, I like film criticism in the same way that I like uh, literature um in that there is so much that goes into a, a piece of art like cinema uh that you can sit and analyze it. you know i've seen films like so and images and theater blood all of these films numerous times and still i can find something new about them still i can find something new to talk about and my thoughts change over the course of you know uh, over the course of my life. So there are films that I've seen multiple times at different points in my life that I have a very different relationship to now. Um, and I like, I like that too. So that's, that's what I could think about the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think that pretty much, I think people who love film, I probably could give very similar answers. I think there's just something about being able to watch a story that might not have anything to do with what I'm going through in my life, um, may not have people that are anything like me. And yet I can, I can take something away that I feel like I can use or, um, can look at a situation I'm facing in a different way or with new perspective. It also is a window into new cultures and new people. And, um, I think the biggest thing I've gotten out of watching movies is just a more empathetic view of the world and that and it's funny because that can come even just in watching you know like the pixar movie that was out earlier this year luca is so cute and it's like you know these two boys that are friends and they meet this girl but the boys are actually sea monsters and it's like oh yeah that's silly and adorable but it's also just this really really sweet story about acceptance and about um you know the other and and not treating people like they're outsiders and you know and and so it's like even in really um 
simple and and cute stories the there's some really beautiful messages and and i just i love that and sometimes i have to remember when i'm watching a movie that i'm like oh this is terrible i have to remember but movies are good like even bad movies i can get something good out of it or the experience can be worthwhile or you know yeah i think that's a really good point and i do think that particularly in recent years where i've sort of pushed myself can you still hear me yes okay good getting a little thing that says my connection is unstable so, Uh-oh. <laughs> um there have been moments uh where i feel like i've pushed myself to watch a, a wider variety of films right when when i was younger i watched a lot of like classic classic hollywood right and those are very good films and they and there's a lot of good stuff in them but trying to be like okay i want to watch more films made by Black filmmakers made by, you know, women filmmakers and LGBTQ filmmakers, writers, directors, producers, et cetera, and more films from other cultures. Again, and, and it is that that relationship to empathy to be like, I get to take the perspective of people that are not like me, right? I am a cisgender white woman. Um, so I have a very particular experience and I, I have a particular experience of oppression and of what that feels like. But I'm not as oppressed as a lot of people. But uh, but I, I also think that um, those films are not necessarily about oppression. It's not necessarily about pushing back against whatever the white mainstream is. Those films are also about just cultural concerns and, and people as people, human beings, right? Human beings relating to each other and being human. And I, I think that that is definitely something that film can do really well. Mm-hmm. Um, is make us engage with other perspectives and make us empathize, like you say, empathize with other perspectives and not necessarily say, oh, I know what it feels like to be a black woman or I know what it feels like to be a transgender woman or anything like that. But I can look at them and be like, ah, yes, I, I understand this. I can at least, you know, try kind of empathize with you and understand how you feel, um, even though I can never completely experience it. And film is very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of times where I've been like, wow, this is this is a situation that I've never considered before. Or, you know, like, I don't know why it's kind of random, but the movie that just popped into my head was The Florida Project. And, you know, I, I know that there are people that are in dire situations that are living in motels all across the country and you know like there's there's extreme poverty in a country that is so rich and it's ridiculous that there's extreme poverty here and seeing a movie like that where it's it's told through the perspective of a kid who doesn't even know that she shouldn't love the life that she has you know she thinks everything's great more or less i mean she knows not everything is perfect but you know she's got she doesn't care that she's living in a motel she's got her friends she gets to run around and do whatever she wants but we as viewers watching her story um can see the tragedy of it and can we just we're moved we want to like help this mom and then that has real world application because then it's like i see this and now when i see a homeless person or i see someone that's living out of their car i see someone who just needs some help it's like okay what what can i do where can i you know where can i jump in and and help because Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about this person's experience now not just like i don't want to i don't have a dollar to give you you know what i mean like it's 
now I'm thinking, no, I want to really not just give them a couple of bucks, but like really help them in their life. And, and so I think that that's one of the, the really great things about, about film is how it can, it can just help us do that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and uh, one of the things I like about films like the Florida Project, though, is that it, it also, there's this tendency, you know, we talk about poverty porn. Yeah. Um, about, you know, this sort of desire to ba basically produce films uh, that, you know, kind of lives, but treat it like this major melodramatic, almost soap opera thing. Mm -hmm. one, one of the great things about the Florida Project is that it isn't all just, you know, suffering and pain. Right. It's, it's no, this is, a, this is how these people live. Mm -hmm. And this little girl is having a lot of fun and she's having a great time with her friend and she has all these wonderful imagine, you know, imaginary adventures, et cetera. But she's also living in these very bad circumstances. So it isn't treating people like, well, we're just going to consume your suffering for entertainment. Right. It also isn't saying that, that people who live like this or, um, or anyone really, right, is, in a constant state of suffering. Right. Uh, it, it actually treats it as this complex world and mm -hmm. like pe treating people like people, like human yeah. beings, full existent human beings who have problems and also have joys. Yeah. And so then when you see, um, you know, like a mom who's struggling, you see the answer isn't just take your kids away that's not going to fix the problem it's you need to get them both help you need yeah and and it introduces it introduces that it's it's i think really great uh, especially social issue films um not just show you the problem but also show you the that it's not all terrible like you say and also show that there are other ways to handle it it's not just you know bureaucracy needs to get involved it's it's let's let's mm -hmm. just love each other let's just take care of each other so. yeah i agree I, I i do want to mention one more thing that i love about film and it's it's kind of related to this uh is that it's a very democratic medium and by mm -hmm. that i mean in terms of the way that that humanity consumes cinema right Film exists on pretty on almost every continent on the planet. Yeah. Um, and what's really remarkable about it is that we can see, especially now, we can see these films, right? You can show a Hollywood movie in China and they get to experience that, you know, world. And yes, we're where they're all there are all kinds of cultural issues with that, and there's all kinds of issues of imperialism, but we get to have this exchange where we have this incredibly visual medium where everybody you know i can watch films from nigeria i can watch films from mexico and from canada and from uh you know from laos and all of those things are something that i get to experience and that other people get to experience mm -hmm. and we all get to experience it at the same time right um and, and it doesn't matter whether you're incredibly poor or incredibly rich. That's, that's why, you know, in some ways I love streaming so much is because it gives you more and more access and more and more people access to different kinds of film and different kinds of experiences and expands that sense of empathy. Yeah. Um, and, and I like that about film. Film was designed to be a democratic medium. It's probably the most democratic medium we have. Uh, and and i i like that about it i love that yeah last year at sundance um 2020 before everything shut down 
uh i went and saw this film called this is not a burial it is a resurrection it's from this tiny place in africa called lesotho i was watching this film it was i think the first film i saw at sundance last year and i was watching it going i'm really struggling to follow what's happening um there's a lot of cultural stuff at play that i don't understand but i'm so glad that i'm getting exposed to this uh this style of filmmaking this um this kind of interesting blend of of myth and tradition and um and also a real life present day modern um like fight that's happening political fight in this area where people are fighting over water rights and property and things like that and it was just like wow this is a this is this is fascinating because i would never have had any idea that this is happening in this part of the world if it wasn't for this random film that i saw at sundance that i just got the ticket because i was intrigued by the title <laughs> and um, I even wrote in my review of that movie that, you know, I, 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 I don't know enough about the history and the culture to say if this is a well done film. I think it's a really important one, though, and people should should see it for the experience. And then it was so crazy because then at the end of the week, I was standing in line for something else. And, you know, when you're at a festival, you just chat with people around you and like, oh, what else have you seen? What's good? And and um, so I was talking to this couple and. Uh, the woman was just saying like, oh, you know, yesterday we went and saw this film called This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. And I was just like, oh, I saw that the other day. And she goes, yeah, you know, I went and saw it because I was reading this review that was like, I don't really understand this movie, but I think people should see it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just got quoted back to myself. What the hell? That's great. See, and that's the power of being a film critic too, of actually exactly. getting to do that. Be like, and, and that's whenever I see a film that I love as, as you know, and I, I write, I don't write as much criticism as I used to, and I really need to be writing more. Actually, this, is what I, this is what I was thinking about, like when I was rewatching Theater of Blood yesterday, I was like, I want to tell everyone how great this is. <laughs> Let me explain to you how awesome this is, please. Yes, yes, yes. We need to do more of the written word and, and not just like, uh, new films, which my Shang-Chi um, uh, review is is coming this weekend. But like, yeah, going back and, and really diving into um, the the cultural elements of of other films and older films and and uh, really taking the time to analyze those, we need to we need to get back yeah. into doing more of that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, that, well, and that's the other thing. And um, I think one of the reasons why it's so important that we watch older films uh, is you, films can also, like you say, films are very representative of their culture, the reality of people living in, you know, 1968, 1981, 1913, right? And it's not necessarily saying that, you but film really can give you a window into that. And it can be very simple things. It's just, just in terms of the way that people dress, the way that they talk, the words that are used, um, the words that are considered acceptable or not acceptable. And I, I was watching um, uh, Cutter's Way, which is a 19, 1980 film. 
um, the other day. And this is a film that's like dealing with post-Vietnam War era that is, is dealing with um, alcoholism and, and it's all within the context of this murder mystery, which is very odd. But one of the things that I found really interesting is that a lot of what was being said, I'm like, this is kind of the same conversations that we're having right now about this, this almost doom and gloom attitude, this like the world is terrible and you know, life is nasty, brutish and short, that kind of thing. And in watching, I was like, this is, this is my parents, right? This is the same generation as my parents, a little bit older. Um, and, and I'm like, well, you know, so this has always been going on basically, but it's that sense of like the post-Vietnam War era is a very dark period in America and a very difficult period in America. And that's, that's fascinating in and of itself. And again, this film can give me a window into that. And it's a film that's made before I was born about things that happened before I was born and that I will never experience, but I can actually look at that and be like, oh, some of the same conversations were going on in cinema in 1980 that were going that are going on now. Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for that. And on the subject of evergreen content <laughs> uh, and conversations, why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been watching recently? Mainly, <laughs> I mean, Theater of Blood. <laughs> All right, well, I am gonna post a review of this. I got, I got the Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Um, thank you so much, Kino. Uh, I, this is, I have been waiting for this film to come out on American Blu-ray for like ever, ever since I saw it. Um, it's been <laughs> on like Amazon, et cetera. So there might still be places to watch it. I don't know, but it is now out on Kino Blu-ray. It is- I just of... checked it out on Hoopla, yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh, it is. I think my favorite Vincent Price film, which is saying an awful lot because I adore Vincent Price. I love like nine tenths of his films. Um, and this, and, and this is also, by the way, his favorite film that he made. And it's also Diana Riggs' favorite film. She said that it was the best film she ever made. <laughs> nice. Um, and the, so I'm not gonna go into too much about it, but the plot of Theater of Blood is about a Shakespearean actor named Edward Lionheart who commits suicide uh, after a group of critics refused to give him a Critic Circle Award. And <laughs> after his suicide, following his suicide, suddenly these critics begin dying in very graphic ways that are all based on the plays of Shakespeare. So by that, I mean, the entire film opens with uh, a murder that occurs on the Ides of March, um, where one of the critics is stabbed to death in a very, very graphic way. Nice. Um, so, and then this, this happens throughout the film. Most of the film is occupied, honestly, in these elaborate murders. Like that's what the film is about. Um, during this this whole thing basically what we get is vincent price doing really hammy shakespeare these you know grand soliloquies um <laughs> while the police are trying to figure out you know who's killing off these critics obviously the viewer knows who's killing off these critics because we get to watch it all happen um diana rigg plays vincent price's daughter uh who may or may not actually be involved in in the the murders being committed she i mean she's delicious He's delicious. It's a great cast. It's like Robert Morley, uh, Coral Brown, um, 
uh, Ian Hendry, some, you know, some of these great actors who are in this film that is literally just indulging in terrible Shakespeare and murdering critics. It's a fantastic movie. It's hilarious. It's supposed to be funny. It's not intended to be serious. Um, and it's a really great kind of digging into the fact that Shakespeare really is violent. Um, and it's violent, he's violent, he's dark, he's funny, there, he's melodramatic. It's kind of in some ways bringing Shakespeare down to a almost grittier level and saying like, you know, a lot of Shakespeare really is playing to the groundlings. It's not, we have this idea of Shakespeare as being this high flown language and everything, and, and he has beautiful language. But it, often it's in the context of these ridiculous plays and these ridiculous stories in which people are, you know, cooking uh, other people's children and feeding them and feeding them to their mothers in pies. <laughs> like that happens in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And this, this film like really goes into that. It's just like, man, Shakespeare's really <laughs> fucked up. Yep. <laughs> it's true. Oh my gosh, I love it. So, yeah, it's it's a wonderful film. Uh, it's funny. It's like, it's very well paced. It's not too long. It's not too short. And, and it is quite satisfying. Nice. Well, I just checked it out from the library. So I'm gonna watch it. Definitely um. watch it. Definitely <laughs> watch it. And I, I will say the Kino, the Kino Blu-ray is really pretty. It's really well done. Kino cool. tends to produce good Blu-rays um that it's it's been refurbished very nicely and it's it's really a joy to actually have this available um in america for a long time this film was just not easy to access nice well i'm gonna have to get my hands on a copy i still maintain on the subject of shakespeare that romeo and juliet is a comedy not a tragedy but anyway <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i don't know if you've ever seen the television show upstart crow i have not um, it's on, I think it's on BritBox on, on Amazon Prime. It, it is honestly worth it. And you could get through, it's three seasons. I think you can get through it pretty quickly, but it's a comedy, a situation comedy about William Shakespeare. <laughs> and one of the things that it does is that each episode is like about Shakespeare writing a different play. Shakespeare is ridiculous. So people questioning him, sort of being like, wait a minute, she's how old? She's like, well, she's 13. <laughs> it's just like, she's 13. Are you insane? What is wrong with you? Like, it's that kind of thing. One of my favorite episode is one that unpacks the fact that Hamlet is a comedy. <laughs> and it's so accurate. It just kills me. It, it's just like, oh my God, it's true. Hamlet is a comedy. <laughs> Fuck. Because yeah, it, it is. It's it's like Shakespeare, you know, it's he's melodramatic. It's ridiculous. You've got men dressing up as women dressing up as men and pretending to be women like you've got you've got teenagers who are just like i'm gonna kill myself no i'm gonna kill myself first it is funny like what elevates shakespeare above his contemporaries is his language really yeah when, when it really comes down to it the plots themselves are insane mm -hmm. yeah they are they are exactly and i think that all these years people have been reading Shakespeare wrong and that's why high school kids think he's boring when really he's brilliant and fun. <laughs> and and honestly, if you ever see a really good Shakespeare production on stage, particularly of the comedies, uh, I, I got to see a version of Twelfth Night. Nice. It's funny and it points out just how funny Shakespeare really is. And de deliberately so, you know, this is mm -hmm. not like, you know, he's got fart jokes and dick jokes yep. and like <laughs> elaborate 
pranks on people, sometimes very nasty pranks. You uh-huh. know, Shakespeare is funny, he's dark, he's violent, it's extreme. And we really do need to get back to that sometimes. Just be like, you know what, this is fun. This is intended to be fun. It's intended to be entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, a movie that I just watched last night again that um, just going off of your theater of blood, which you love. I watched a movie I love, um, revisited last night, and that was Sunset Boulevard. Ooh. Because I haven't watched it in a while, but I love it so much. It's so good. And I just, it was funny because afterwards I was like looking at, because I was, oh, it has 99% on Rotten to me. And it was, why does it have 99%? Why isn't it 100? This is a perfect movie. (laughs) And so I was just kind of scrolling through reviews and just going back to the subject of like, are people dumb? Someone in one of their reviews was like, it borrows heavily from Miss Haversham and Great Expectations. I'm like, no shit. <laughs> it actually says it's doing that. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's a feature, not a bug. Like, <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. Exactly. Like <laughs> William Holden actually compares her vocally. Anyway, whatever. Not here nor there. But uh, but yeah, no, I just I love the movie and every time I watch it I find just other like like I kind of have something that'll just really stick with me you know story-wise and in this this viewing it was um going back to the subject of empathy it was the empathy that DeMille shows like how he just feels so bad for for Norma and um and he just is just kind of crushed for her when he realizes like she doesn't have what it takes to survive in the hollywood their present day hollywood like she really is a relic of the past and everyone's just kind of given up on her and she doesn't know that and um i just i don't know it was just interesting because then someone makes a comment about her being kind of a wreck and he was just like she couldn't handle the pressure like look at what she was dealing with when she was 17 years old and it was just like wow this is such a such an empathetic view that um you don't necessarily ascribe to like big hollywood directors and producers especially of the golden age and it just i don't know just i've seen the movie before i've i've seen that scene a million times but it just i don't know for some reason particularly struck me this time as just like surprising in its level of empathy i guess it's you know that that's interesting so it's been ages since i saw that film um and and i never really thought about it like that but she she is a very sympathetic character mm-hmm. um overall yeah right? and even, even though she she's the she's venal and egotistical and horrifying sometimes she's also very sympathetic you you kind of were rooting for her for a lot of the film um and that, that's interesting to so like. I never really thought about DeMille, DeMille's performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it just, yeah, it particularly struck me. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is really great. And so it just, that was kind of the thing that I, I took away from, from this viewing. And um, I encourage people, if, if you've never seen it before, I, I believe it is one of the, maybe the best films about Hollywood. That Hollywood has ever made and I love movies about Hollywood almost as much as Hollywood does 
<laughs> but uh i i really sunset boulevard is top of the list it's it's so so great and i know that they're remaking the musical with glenn close that's been planned for a long time i hope that it uh is good i love glenn close i love the story but nothing beats the 1950 film and definitely check it out it's on criterion mm-hmm. it's on hbo max it's you know there's lots of places to watch it it's one of the most ubiquitously available it's on my films. shelf because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i have it so yeah it is anything else you've been watching that you want to chat about uh i i did want to mention really quickly i've been watching a lot of the gene harlow films that are currently on the criterion channel and um first of all gene harlow is delightful she she is uh i think probably one of the most underrated actresses of the pre-code era and it was really sad because she died very very young mm-hmm. um and so it's very sad to to see these films and to be like god she's such a talent at the age of you know 25 what could she have done as she got older, how would she have navigated Hollywood? You know, all of those things. It's it's very sad in in a certain sense to watch her films be like, she's so great. I, I'm so sad that we don't have a longer career that we don't get to see more of her. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, one of my favorite films from this collection right now is um, Hold Your Man, which is I think 33. It's right on the edge of of the pre code code era. Um, it is very pre-code in a lot of ways, <laughs> uh, but it's it's Gene Harlow and Clark Gable as sort of con, con artists, very small time con artists. But it's a film that's written by Anita Luce and it takes a turn about halfway through the movie that and then goes to places that I really did not expect, but that is very much about female friendship and camaraderie and support of one another. And it's actually quite moving and sweet and surprisingly like it, it there's there's a surprising depth to it and it's funny because i actually looked up you know why does this film kind of go the places that it does because it deals with things like um premarital sex and pregnancy and having a child out of out of marriage etc and apparently basically i think it was sam goldwin essentially required loose to rewrite the ending of the movie because uh, in order to punish the Gene Harlow character for having premarital sex. Hmm. What the film actually does, she does not get punished at all. This is not a punishment. It is a very different, it, it goes in directions that are very surprising for the time period and that are really, really beautiful. And um, I, I really encourage people to watch it. Like the description on Criterion doesn't do it justice because it takes this turn. Um, and it, it's it's a wonderful film. Harlow, Harlow at one point, a woman basically calls her a slut and Harlow just turns around and punches her and like, <laughs> like literally like punches her. And, and even like the Gable character is like, I didn't know you had such a mean left. <laughs> like, he's just, he's just like, holy shit, you just like knocked her down. And it's very satisfying because it's like, yes, thank you, Jean Harlow for just decking that woman. <laughs> So I, I strongly recommend it. Hold your man. I think it's 1933. Awesome. Yeah, I was looking at the Gene Harlow movies last night. I was gonna watch one, but then I was just like, no, I'm in the mood for I'm in the mood for comfort. Well, not comfort, but you know, an old favorite. So mm-hmm. yeah. So um, but those are definitely I added them to my list. So I'll be working my way through those. 
um the only other real significant thing well i saw a movie but i'm kind of embargoed on it so i'll talk about it next week but um i the only other thing really substantial that i watched this week was um what we do in the shadows which is back (laughs) finally yes oh season three is off to a great start it's interesting because jermaine clement has now stepped away so he and taika are still involved but they're not involved in the day-to-day and so i was really nervous about what it would do to the show to have a new showrunner but so far with two episodes i'm loving it it's so funny it, it does seem a little bit um just just a little bit and maybe it's because i was tired that's also possible i need to rewatch them but um it felt a little bit less silly than we've seen in previous seasons i don't know if you experienced that too uh i not particularly actually i think that i mean i'll be interested to see where they go with this mm-hmm. um i like this whole idea about them them uh spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched it yet (laughs) them joining the vampire council becoming like the head becoming the vampire council basically because Guillermo's murdered everyone (laughs) um and and I really I really liked I liked some of the things that they're doing with the Nandor Guillermo relationship yeah um I think that that's really there are a lot of interesting things that they can do with that and there have been a lot of things that have been hinted at for two years and now it's like oh they're really going to go that direction. This is cool. Yeah, they're actually dealing with, you know, their, the potential for feelings for each other. I'm like, oh my God, like, wow. Um, yeah. I can't wait to one day see a scene where they're in couples therapy. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. And I, I like that. I like kind of the shifting dynamics. I like the fact that um, Guillermo, you know, with his discovery of his powers, et cetera, uh, is, is becoming this like sort of badass right Mm -hmm. and at one point you know you like he crawls into the vents and things and and it's just like spying on them and Nandor's like oh he's just a rascal he's a little rascal (laughs) just like you go back you go back to your room (laughs) I love them so much Nadia is just as hilarious as ever like just you know doesn't want to be bothered with anything that she doesn't care about but and she just has no problem telling the men to just shut up i love it yeah Yeah. laszlo's like i don't want to be a bureaucrat (laughs) see my favorite part of that episode was basically they're like oh you know oh my god we're gonna be added to the vampire council we're gonna be so powerful and he's like fuck this i don't (laughs) want that i i became a vampire to drink blood and fuck forever like that's all that i (laughs) he's just totally like nope like they're all fighting over the throne and he's just like they're idiots like yeah. i don't know why they're doing this <laughs> he just yeah i i really like that because and and uh and not just not just nandor like getting into these wars etc <laughs> well what's great is like giving that like introducing this element of actual power outside of their house it it just um like it it solidifies it's not the right word uh it just like i guess reinforces their personalities their natural inherent personalities even more it's nobody's going against what you've known them to be up till now it's just like making it even deeper yeah and it's great and it's hilarious and i just love the show so much and i'm so happy it's back 
Yes, I, I am looking forward to, to where it is going. <laughs> yes, can't wait for more. So, all right. Any other stuff you wanted to mention? Any, any no, final? I think that that's it. Cool. Well, we're going to wrap this up because I got to get to the farmer's market. <laughs> oh, I love Saturday mornings. Um, I really do. Anyway, um, well, thank you all so much for, for listening to this episode. Once again, we're kind of all over the place, but you know, I hope that you at least enjoy the randomness of our conversations and I hope you get something out of it. Um, we would like to thank our patrons that help make the show possible. That is Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much. And if you would like to subscribe and be part of their number, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. And as a subscriber, you get early access to episodes, you get bonus episodes, and um, for our five and seven dollar levels you also get uh invitations to private uh screenings which we're getting ready to start up another one for september we're gonna be announcing the date on that one soon um these are virtual you don't have to go sit in a movie theater because we are not monsters during a pandemic and also we're on opposite sides of the country so that wouldn't really work anyway um but anyway uh, i digress that's what i do best so uh if you will um but also if you um would like to just send a couple dollars our way and you don't want to subscribe that's cool we love it uh co-fi.com slash citizen dame we also have our zazzle store there's still the same old stuff there but go check it out zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod new stuff is coming uh lauren i haven't sent it to you but i've got new mock-ups for the um new logo so i'm gonna send those to you this week so yeah um anyway like it's really happening people it's really happening uh and you can follow our adventures on our website citizendamepod.com where i will have by the time you're listening to this the shang chi uh review is up hopefully lauren's theater of blood review is coming very very soon yes i have it written i just have to edit it well there you go there you go and uh we got some more good stuff coming your way too i mean it's festival season so i'm gonna be seeing a lot of stuff and and telling you all about what what you should watch and what you should run away from very very fast um and if you have thoughts and you would like to share them with us but you don't want to do that via social media you can email us citizendamepod at gmail.com but if social media is your thing and you want to follow us on those platforms for all of our unfiltered thoughts uh you can find us on twitter and instagram at citizen dame pod and also on letterboxd at citizen dame now we don't really post reviews there but we do have lots of great lists um and we try to make new lists related to whatever we've been talking about on each episode so i don't know what we'll do for this week but lots of great stuff about um great female directors writers um great horror films uh all kinds of stuff so uh so find us there you can also find us individually lauren where are you i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at lh business and i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at karen m peterson so thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time Bye. 
what I've been doing is I've been sneaking out when they go and slumber. Colin Robinson heads out to work by 9.45, so I'm up by then. I've been coming up here and doing all the things that need to be done to keep the house functioning. Of course they don't notice because they just think it happens automatically. It doesn't. I do it. Heads up. I mean, I should really just consider escaping and leaving, never coming back. Especially because they're considering, you know, killing me. <laughs> but I just wonder what would happen if I wasn't here to help them out. They're like family. I know, codependent much.